And we are live. Welcome, folks, to episode 3,441 of the Survival Podcast. Over the weekend, I saved up a bunch of, like, crazy mind-bending headlines and things that are going on. I got some emails from people about uh, some stuff with the drug company, specifically a Tucker Carlson interview that will make your brain snap back and a bunch of stuff like that. And I was actually planning on doing a show like that today because it's been a while since we did one like that and I always get more people turn up for them than the shows that are like practical can improve your life and all. Then I started thinking about something. Jack, what what are you, what are you doing right now? What what's going on in your life? Where are you putting your efforts? And right now, everything that I'm doing is about getting the final touches on my beds ready for spring planting and starting seeds uh, up into the point where I made my potting soil that I'll tell you how I make this weekend. It was one of my things like, this must be done this weekend. The weekend shall not end with this not being done. Thou shalt do thy thing where thy have failed, and I will lash thyself with a wet noodle until thy does it. Like, it was like, and I'm like, well, if that's what I'm doing, then that's clearly what's important to do right now, this time of year. So pretty much every spring, and sometimes later than I should, I do a version of this episode where I walk you through how to get your seeds started. So that you can like, oh, I don't know, start like 50 plants and have, even with the materials, if you have nothing, a dollar to a dollar fifty into them on your first batch. And like the second time around, maybe you've got like a quarter instead of going out and buying like half as many plants as you really want and paying like four, five, six bucks for them now. Because like all of the nurseries have lost their minds on what the value of a freaking two and a half inch tomato plant is. It, it's insane. It's ludicrous. Um, I still tell people, like, your first year gardening, if you need to buy plants in or something, like, go ahead and buy some. But I'm getting to the point where I might stop even saying that, even though I think it's a good technical thing, because if you've never gardened before, that's a skill set, and starting plants is a separate skill set. But five bucks for a tomato plant? It's highly unlikely, especially as a new gardener, that that tomato plant will ever produce anything approaching five bucks worth of tomatoes. Really. Like, you need you know, several plants, at least, uh, of tomatoes and several plants of peppers and what have you. And, and remember, your production is going to come at the high time of production for everybody, so that's going to be the lowest prices in the market. So I'm not only doing this to beat the cost, but that should be part of the equation. And I've seen people at, at box stores buying tomato plants, six bucks a plant, like a Home Depot or Lowe's, because the plant's a little bit bigger. Buying the plant at a time where I know full well we're going to get another frost. In fact, there's one in the, one in the forecast that's going to come. And I look at that person and I think to myself, self, they're going to go home and plant that today because it's Saturday and it's nice out. And that $6 is going to be wasted. And if they wanted to take that gamble and they had like 10 tomato plants and they only wanted five to set out or 20 and they only wanted 10 big whoop. You put out and you, you keep your setback. That's a strategy we'll talk about a little bit today. If you want to ga- gamble it a little bit and try to go early. But they're not going to do that. And they're going to come back. And they're going to say the plant was guaranteed. And Home Depot, Lowe's, et al. are going to say, but you planted it in the frost, so no it's not. That's what's going to happen. And even if they replace the plant, you still have to take now two trips plus whatever the hell else you're going to buy when you're there because nobody goes to those hell holes and buys one thing. You see where I'm going. So This is a skill that is becoming more necessary over time as the people that are in the supply chain continue to just drag money out of your very financial soul. To take a plant that's in, especially the kind of potting soil these assholes use, 
right? Chemically infused crap. They have maybe at their cost a nickel in the container and the soil, and let's say a penny in the seed, and a nickel in labor. So they've got, I'm being kind if I say, I'll round up and say 20 cents into the product, and they're selling it for $6. I'm a capitalist. I'm all about making good margins. That is not a good margin. That is a usurious margin. It is disgusting, and it only exists because we've become a nation of people that can't stick a seed in a container and take care of it for a few weeks. And the minute we start, see, I think there's two things to this. One, if we start doing this, we'll make better plants. I'm going to talk about how to do that today. But for everybody else that's still buying them, we'll drive the price down. When the, when the demand goes away, the price will fall. Because they're not doing, like there's so many things that are inflated in cost right now because, well, the supplier's costs are up, so they have to pass on the, the charge. You know what? The cost for Bonnie or somebody like that to make a tomato plant in a three or four inch cup has not gone up by 150%. It hasn't. It's a lie. It's bullshit. And we do not. And it was already high before it went up. It was already three bucks for a single tomato plant is stupid. Uh, plants like this should probably be like a six pack, like $1.99. That's what they should cost. And the plants you're buying in the four inch cups are no bigger than the ones you could buy in a six-pack ten years ago before they went crazy with this stupid shit. So that's what we're going to talk about today, among other things. And I didn't plan on that long of an intro or going off on this topic. But as I think about it, and I think about people being extorted, it's time we do something. So we're going to do that today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. You know, one place I know I can send you, and I absolutely know you're not going to get jacked and ripped off, is when you're going to buy silver, gold, platinum, any precious metals, whether it's Silver eagles, or just ornamental rounds, or bars, or you know, uh, pre sixty four, pre sixty five silver coinage, or anything, is jam bullion. Because I've been dealing with them for a decade now plus, more than a decade. I can email the president of the company, which I literally haven't had to do in five years. I should probably send him an email just to say, "Hey, dude, how you doing?" To make sure the email still works. That's how long it's been since there's been any kind of a customer service issue with them. Um, they do a discount for MSB members. They ship really quick. All orders over 200 bucks are shipped free. And I think if you're buying silver, gold, etc., you probably should wait to put in an online order until you're up into that range anyway. Uh, I don't think online works really well for like stacking one silver coin a, a week or something. Like Save up, make individual purchases, get your discount, um, and get free shipping from a company that will never do you wrong because they've never done anybody wrong in this audience that I've ever found. And the few times in the very beginning where there were some QA issues, when I stepped in, Michael, who's the president of the company, you know what he said to me? Thank you for helping me make my company better. Right then, I knew this would be a lifelong partner as long as they wanted to be partners with us, and they've stuck around, again, for more than a decade now. So check them out today. JM Bullion, when I'm going to buy silver and gold, that's where I go. That's where you should go, too. Next up today is... Live Free Academy, John Bush has an event coming up. I believe it starts the 19th of this month. Yeah, February 19th through 23rd. It is the Freedom Cell Challenge. It's 100% free to join. If you've always, you know, I get more questions, and Nicole sauce those two, probably about building community than just about any other individual thing. And it's something people struggle to do. You want to build action-based community that actually does stuff? Then Freedom Cell is what you want to check out. There is no cost to sign up for this. There's always add-ons with John, you know. He's like me. He doesn't hate money. But to just participate, it's free. 
February 19th through 23rd. All you got to do is is jump over to Live Free Academy and sign up for the link. If you want to right now, if you're watching the video, right down there in the video notes, there's a link to do it. You can go do it while you listen to me. It's not a problem at all to do. Pretty simple. And if you're listening to the audio version, just pull up today's episode and it will be in the audio notes. All right, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the main topic of discussion today. And um, again, I feel like this is a point in history where I want all of my fellow podcasters, teachers, etc. to maybe do a little bit more work to make people comfortable starting their own plants. I, I seldom am the guy that gets pissed off about the price of things. I, I really am. I think most of the time when people bitch about price, instead of blaming the people who inflated your currency into, to where it's valueless, the government and the Federal Reserve, people are blaming the grocery store owner, you know, the independent plan. You can, if you want to get good plants right now and not pay stupid prices, find the independent dealers. Find the people working with independent propagators. One of the places, if I need some plants that I'll go... I, I buy a lot of stuff from a place called Russell Feeds here. It's a local place. I don't buy my bird feed there anymore because we're actually doing custom mix from a place called Tony's Seed and Feed that's like 90 miles away now. Um, but every year they have plants out, and they're in like your three-inch square planters, and they're like $1.49 a piece. So you can find reasonably priced plants, but some of you might not live where they are, or those particular dealers may not have the quality the quantity, or the items that you're looking for. And I just feel this is absolutely preposterous. When they went from, like, I remember most of the Bonnie plants were between $2.99 and $3.99 a plant, and I always thought it was high, but I'm like, if somebody's planting a couple raised beds for their first year, how many plants do they need to buy? Because some stuff like cucumber and all, even though you can plant it and start it, and we'll talk about that today a little bit, how, what you do with that, like peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, and a few others are the ones that you really need to start inside to extend your growing season to get a harvest. And the ones that require some extra care. So how much are they going to buy? Let's say 10 plants. So 30, 40 bucks for 10 plants? All right, you know, it's your first year. It's kind of your, like, educational tax, so you can do the other things and get ready to do it the next season. Now, 20 plants? At six bucks, a hundred and twenty dollars. I have for my item today. I have, I have plant lights today. You can buy a set of six two foot plant lights for like fifty bucks. You could use solo cups to grow your your stuff in. Buy one decent bag of potting soil locally instead of. I have links today for everything. Some of this stuff it makes sense to buy on Amazon. Some of it, I really encourage you, if it's a bulky, heavy item, it's free shipping on Amazon Prime. Yeah, and they build the price into the price, right? They bring, build the shipping into the price with these heavy, bulky items. So, so check your pricing. At least make a phone call. Do you have this? You know, if it's a bag of potting soil, yes, you do. How much is it? And, and do the math. Is it worth picking it up? Um, but, yeah, I mean, for the price of those 20 plants, you could get everything you need and start 100 plants this year. Give some away to your neighbors, spread the disease, or sell some on next door for a couple bucks a piece and start building this. Like, there is no reason to give these price-gouging maggots your money anymore. Okay, let's go on to actually, well, how to do this. So let's start off with how to think about this. I think this is really important. 
So, and I'll also tell you guys listening to me in live feed, if I start getting jiggy or jittery or you don't understand what I'm saying or I'm having like audio problems, I have some videos that I shot this weekend where I was making potting soil that we're going to go through during this episode. And I was going to put them up as two separate videos and when I watched it, I'm like, they really just need to be edited and merged together. So I did that. I'm uploading that video right now. So if it starts causing a problem, I'll stop and I'll, I'll restart it later. So just let me know if that happens. So anyway, I want to start out with how seeds germinate in the wild. And as far as I know, in all the podcasts I've listened to about this subject, I'm the only podcaster, and I, I don't know that I've heard anybody in like a presentation or seminar explain this either, but I think it's interesting that we're going to go start seeds in, a, in an artificial environment <clears throat> trying to emulate nature so that we can get this little tiny tomato seed up to you know a plant that's a, you know, 6, 8, 10 inches tall maybe that we're going to set out, and that's going to give us more time than if we planted the seed in the soil. And so we're, tra we're trying to emulate nature, and we don't look at, well, how does nature start seeds? How does nature start seeds? So Tom says he's getting skips right there. I am just going to stop that. And you'll just have to wait longer for that video to be uploaded. So that's that's cut off, and we should be uh, a little bit better now. All right, so that's done, and you're just going to have to wait longer to get uh, the video that I promised. And I'm also going to have to do something else here now. Since doing that, I actually closed. I actually closed. Sorry, guys. Trying to serve the audience, sometimes you don't do things perfectly. Let me get the notes back up over here so I stay on track. And what we're going to be talking about, though, leading in, is we're going to talk about how does, how does nature do seeds. So we think nature is a really harsh environment for a little seed to grow in. It's a miracle that it happens. There is some things that the plants have on their side for this like sheer numbers, and it only needs to grow where it's going to do well. But nature's actually far more nurturing of seeds than it is of human beings. You know, human beings, it like blows our house down. We're the same store that blows a house, the roof off a house, may not even affect a seed in a field unless they get a direct touchdown of a tornado or something right on the surface of that field. So let's think about, let's think about how a seed in the fall gets through to spring and grows. And let's talk about a seed that's kind of a bean-like seed. Other seeds have a little bit different of a path, but this will give us a good one. So we have something that grows. Let's say something like a wild vetch plant. It's kind of in the pea bean family, legume family. And toward the end of its season, before the frost kills the plant, it has flowers, it gets pollinated, and it forms a little pod, just like peas or beans that you pick out of your garden. And it dries out. And it's, it's held up by the plant above the ground. It makes no soil contact. And even when it gets wet because it gets rained on or whatever, it's got this little casing around it. And there's, if you've ever taken one of these dry casings apart, there's kind of a membrane in there. Unless it gets really soaked, really, really, really heavily soaked and stays wet, the seed stays mostly dry. And it sits there. It's very cold and it's windy and it rolls and rattles around and all. But basically, it's in a state where it's not going to germinate. It's not wet enough. And it's too cold. The rains of winter, the snows of winter, the storms of winter come. The plants begin to break down. 
Animals walk through, set down winds, break plants over, snow weighs it down. Sooner or later, some of those seeds in that little packet, just kind of like the packet your seeds come in when you buy them from a supplier, except nature's version of it, end up in ground contact. And probably other cover ends up on top of them. Because remember, we don't see a bare piece of ground in nature unless something has gone wrong badly or looking at true full-on sand desert. Otherwise, if you look at the ground and it's dirt and there's nothing growing there, some disturbance occurred, whether it was man-made or a natural disturbance. And nature is going to try to fill that as quick as it can. So it's going to be laying in this leaf litter or other herbaceous plant litter, a mix of carbon and nitrogen. What does that sound like? Compost. And eventually it will make contact with the soil, but now, by the time that happens... We're probably in the depths of winter. It's pretty cold. And people think, well, if it's cold, the seed won't germinate. But the reality is most seeds will eventually germinate even in the cold. But what will happen is how quickly they germinate will slow down, right? So what might germinate in three to four days if the, if the soil temperature was 70 degrees, if the soil temperature is 40 degrees, well, it might take that seed... 60 days to germinate it until the soil temperature comes up. So it sits there and it waits. And even when you have a nice warm day, it's all down under all that leaf litter. It's wet. There's a a decent evaporation rate on a warm day. The soil stays cool. So it's like, not my time. It's not my time. Wind comes, it's all protected. Right? We get an ice storm on top of it, it's all protected. It's in its own little igloo down there under everything. We think this is so harsh. The seed's just like, yo, bro, you tell, you tell, coach, tell me when I'm in. I'm sitting on the bench. When you call me, I'm there. And then we really start to warm up. The soil temperature comes up. And when that seed gets the right parameters for itself to germinate, it germinates. Now, a young plant. I wonder how many of you guys have ever put a plant out like me, especially our springs are wicked. And you put this little plant out, and the winds come, and your plant's just sitting there getting the crap beat out of it. That's why, like, my gardens are always designed with wind blocks and, and, and wind shadows and stuff like that. So you think, well, there's a little baby-ass plant out there by itself. It's going to get just beat to shit by the wind. But no, it's not. It's got all its cover, all its natural cover. It's all protected. It's down underneath the cover. And it's getting diffused light. Sure, the light's reaching it, and it's getting plenty of it and a long duration, but it's getting a motled shaded light. So it's going to start reaching up it, but at the same time, it's getting enough light, so it's going to start getting kind of honey badger-like. It's going to start stretching out. And if it does get a little leggy, it's got all kinds of support until it catches up. Eventually, it's going to canopy out. It's going to be exposed to the elements, but by then, we're well into our season, whatever level of frost tolerance it has, the plant timed itself so that even like it's mildly frost tolerant. There might be a few frosts left, but mostly are wild plants and wild germinating plants and plants that have gone natural out of gardens and stuff, they survive. In fact, they do better than the plants we plant. Well, why? Well, one, they have that perfect little bubble around them. We thought it was all harsh, and that's what we're going to talk about emulating today. But there's another thing going on. That plant grew in the native soil where it's going to grow its entire life, And from the day the first rootlet came out, it was making relationships with soil biology, with fungi, with beneficial bacteria. 
where most people, when they plant into a system, it's fairly sterile. There might be a lot of NPK, right? They buy potting soil and they buy, like, you know, whatever they get. It might even be organic, but if it wasn't treated right, there's not much biology in it. It might not be bad in and of itself, but it doesn't have a lot of, like, beneficial bacteria. It probably has no beneficial fungi. So the plant, that when it immediately grows, like, there are mycorrhizal fungi sitting in soil everywhere, even though I do inoculation to, to increase it. Those, those little spores... They will, they're also like the seed in that they will not come out of stasis until there's something there for them. And they must have living root. So when that plant starts putting roots down, there's literally a competition. Who can get there first and form the partnership? And so they form this partnership, and they, they grow in what looks like shitty soil to you, but nobody's ever tilled it or turned it. And that plant is like a honey badger. That's what we want to emulate. But if you ever felt like... You know, nature must be harsh. Why is this so hard to do? Nature's actually very coddling of young seeds, but here's the key. Not everywhere. Each seed has a different type of coddling, or each family of seeds, or each group of seeds, has a different type of coddling it needs. Well, the plants just scatter that shit everywhere. And so we want to take a different approach. So we have to be a little more methodical in the way we do things. We can't just throw them in and say, ah, oh, it's going to be fine. Right? So... With that in mind, let's move on to setting up your, your seed starting system itself. Like just what to think about as you're setting up. So the first thing you need to think about is how much do you want and need to start this year? If you have four or five raised beds, let's say standard four by eights, there's a fixed amount of plants that can go in there. You know, if you lay at one per square foot, that's kind of the square foot gardening method. And I think for a lot of plants like peppers and tomatoes, That's actually a little too tight. I like my peppers at about an 18-inch spacing, and I'll interplant lower-growing things that appreciate the shade in there, but the pepper plants themselves, you know, they're about a foot and a half apart. Same with tomatoes, about a foot and a half apart is what I do, and I consider that actually pretty close. So there's a, a finite amount of what you can grow. Tomato plants grow really big. We don't want to grow them, you know, unless we're going to do a whole bed of, like, two rows of tomatoes and use all four feet mostly for that. We probably want to grow them, like, on the north end of the of the bed so that they get plenty of sun as they get up but they don't shade out our peppers and our eggplants and our our beans and our other lower growing things so you only need to start so many plants and a lot of people like i want to start 20 plants and that's a good number for them it isn't even a big leap to start exactly double what you want and if you do that And you have problems, you have reserve. Two is one and one is none, right? And then if you get to the point where like, okay, my plants all worked. These things are really outgrowing their containers. I've got them sitting out on a shelf outside now. They're no longer indoors and being coddled. Just start, I promise you, if you go on next door and go, I have a dozen extra tomato plants this year and a dozen extra pepper plants. Does anybody want them? You're going to get a couple of Karens like, what exact variety are they? Do you have any German Johnson tomato? Like that person, I'm not even bothered. Like it's a free plant and I put, and I would put like I have X variety, right? But if that person starts like, do you have any? No, 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 no. Not unless you're in business and you actually do. Like I'm not even dealing with that person. But people that are like, yeah, man, I'll take them. You just made a relationship for free, basically, because your real cost in those additional plants is almost nothing. 
And when they plant that plant, if they take care of it and it grows really well, they're going to think about you every time that they go out to that plant. Hey, that, and so that's laying the foundation. If you get really good at this, maybe have a side business. Or if nothing else, just establish relationships with other people in your neighborhood that grow food. You might want to do that. It might be the beginning of a freedom cell. I don't know. Right? Two is one and one is nine. I teach this in martial arts a lot. Is uh, what prisms quadruplete quadruplet mom karate dad yes najaz said okay that's a that's a long one i'm not doing that again uh but you start out with just like let's be reasonable and let's not overbuild our initial system because we can always expand right number two then you got to decide where you're going to put this so you have in your house garage outdoors or greenhouse and they all have different values if you own a greenhouse you probably know most of what I'm talking about today. There might be some little tweaks I'm going to help you with. So we'll leave greenhouse out of it because if you use a greenhouse for seed starting, the only thing you need to realize is unless it's heated or like you have it like where you can close it up and drape it in at night, when it's 28 degrees outside of your greenhouse in the dark, it's 28 degrees inside your greenhouse in the dark. Greenhouses don't really keep the temperature up unless they are specifically designed to do so at night. They only make it warmer during the day. This is something people don't understand. They just don't. It's it, And it's almost instant. You're standing in your greenhouse, the last of the sun goes away, you're good 20 degrees warmer than the outside temperature. Leave the greenhouse, go back an hour after dark, and you're probably looking at the same temperature, maybe some little microclimate spots inside. So the greenhouse thing, either you're heating it or you've purpose-built it to carry over temperature. Yeah? And that's up to you. That's not a greenhouse show. Outdoors, this can work really well in a temperate climate, especially if you have, like, a place where it gets some diffusion of, of, of the sunlight, so on a really good sunny day it doesn't get too much, and you have a, a means by which to easily bring it inside at night. This is actually, if you can do this, this is really cheap. Right? Make some make some crates or cases or something that are comfortable to carry, but then you have to remember it and you have to do the work. And then you, you're relying on the fact that it's going to be warm enough, enough days to keep it outside enough for them all to grow, and I do not recommend this for germination. I would germinate indoors, and as they begin germination, I would move them outside. Okay, And I don't really like this method for this time of year. I love this method. I mean, absolutely love this method, for starts for fall gardens, like broccoli and cauliflower here. And I have a shaded side of my shop. They get diffused light for about half the day. The rest of the day it's shaded. It stays much cooler. It can be 100 degrees out. It's 85 degrees over there. So, And then it, the temperatures are in the decline at that point. I'll totally do it for that time. I don't personally like it, but depending on where you live, this may work. If you live in a place where you have cool but not freezing winters, then, it, like certain parts of Florida, a greenhouse is fantastic for this, right? Most people are going to do like a shop or a garage or in their house. So, this is another thing that you have to really pay attention to. If you have a garage and you keep it from freezing at night, but your daytime temperatures are in the 40s and your garage temperature is in the 50s, those seeds have that innate intelligence we talked about. Like, it's not my time yet. Or I better go kind of slow here, right? Or they're going to be have slower retarded growth. Did I offend somebody? Sorry, that's how you use the word. Um, so you need to think about it. So a lot of folks, your best results, if you have the space, 
will come from indoors. Most people keep their house somewhere between the like high 60s, low 70s all the time. Plants are like, yeah, bro, I got this. That's kind of like good spring temps. And then they're right in front of you, or at least they're in one other room. All I have to do is remember to check that room a couple times a day and see to your watering needs. And I'm not going to get an automating watering or anything like that today. Again, we're going to stay focused on just the concept of starting the seeds. But make that evaluation. And what you might find is a good strategy is maybe you do a lot of your seed starting inside, small area. I have a three foot by about two foot deep shelf that's part of a rack system I built for uh, aquariums. And I had two 10-gallon aquariums sitting in that space. I pulled them out for the spring. I don't have anything going on them in any way. I have two bus tubs, and I can grow uh, about 20 in, in four-inch cups. I can grow uh, 12 per bus straight. I can do uh, 24 plants there. If I go to six packs, I can do a lot more. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. Depends on how many I decide that I really need at this point. Somebody's asking about heating pads. Yes. Now, where I put these, I have these intense lights over them. I've got heated aquariums all around them. I won't use them, but a lot of times those make a lot of sense. And we'll talk about that with some troubleshooting stuff toward the end. But yes, heating pads, great idea, especially for germination. And like your first few days of growth until you get some true leaves on. A lot of times that's great. Just remember, any heating that you do, whether it's heating pads, area heating, whatever, what does it do to your moisture? It speeds up evaporation, so you need to stay better on your monitoring. I know a lot of people use little dome covers and all. Those are fantastic to stimulate germination. But once you get your germination, you really want to kind of get that off or at least lift it up. Just a, just a thought on that. Um, lights. So in every year that I've done this up till this year, I've gone through all the different lighting options. Shop lights, LEDs, T4s, T8s, all of it. I'm going to say this. If you're an old hand, if you have a seat starting system, if you have old school lights and they work for you and you don't want to invest in new lights, you should keep doing what you're doing. If you're going to buy lights now and you buy anything except good quality LED lights like Barina or somebody similar to them makes, then you are throwing away money. I almost don't think you can buy the old school lights for less money now than you can buy like some of the best consumer grade LEDs you can get. So when we get to my item of the day, I have Verena's on, 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 on sale today for the item of the day. And to give you an example, uh, a six-pack of four-foot-long Verena LED lights designed for this purpose is $79.99, bucks. Um, that's I think I have the pricing. I'll have to fix it. If you're looking at my write-up today... I have the prices reversed on them, uh, but the six-pack of four-footers is $79.99, and the six-pack of two-footers is $55.99. When you buy, like, the old fixtures and shit, I don't even know if anybody makes the damn things anymore. You still have to buy bulbs and then replace them. Just go straight to LEDs at this point. Don't even think about anything else, and if you need LEDs when we get to the item of the day, I'll... Give you one example, but I will tell you this: like I love Barina because they always fix anything they screw up. Most of these types of lights today are probably all made in the same place in Hong Kong. They they really are. So whatever you get the best deal on that fits your size requirements, that's what I would do. Um, heating pads, mats, space heating, etc. Like we already had a question on that. It was the next bullet point here. Again, that's one of the things that you really need to realize is when you're heating anything. 
you're increasing your rate of evaporation. And then you need to think about the fact, where's my, my tea? So we're going to use my, my teacup today, my little uh, Nine Mile Farm logo on it, right, to, to, to make this point. If we have a container about this big and we have a little seedling growing in it, and it's even got the roots most of the way down into that cup, what it doesn't have is any other place to get moisture from. So if it's in the ground, if it's in ma nature, as it uses water, water in the soil tends to equalize osmosis, right? So as it takes moisture, moisture from the surrounding ground kind of equalizes it out. And unless the entire ground dries out, it can get more moisture. And in that natural environment, we're going to talk about roots. And one of the issues with doing this perfectly that you get in a minute But that little root, man, it's going down, 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 like downtown Julie Brown, right? If you remember who that was, it is not slowing down at all. It's going to stop going down until it hits really hard pan or something impermeable like rock. So it's got a lot of kind of like, if it doesn't rain for a couple days, it can get away with it. You have yours in a cup, it goes totally dry. By the time you find it, it's either dead or so damaged, it might as well be dead. So you have got to stay on top of whatever irrigation system you come up with. And something like a flood from the bottom irrigation or a mist system or anything that takes your propensity to make a mistake out of it improves your situation. If you're disciplined or you work from home and you can set a schedule and you can manually water, I actually prefer it because it makes you inspect your plants and stay on top of things and identify problems before they get worse where the automation keeps you from screwing up your your, your you know, over or under irrigating or not irrigating but then things you like oh it's got it today I don't need to look at it today you should probably look at them every day at least in the beginning until you know that everything's kind of moving in the right direction for you and then the other thing is when you automate you still need to look you still need to make sure it's functioning because what's worse than no automation is automation that fails, and you don't know that it failed. So, so stay on that. Really, really, really stay on that. Um, so once we have all that done, well, when are we going to start? Uh, when do we do this? Some of you now. And if you're not prepared at all, maybe next week. Some of you further out. What you want to do is you want to figure out how long do I need for this little seed to get to a point where it will be honey badger enough to take it out of its perfect place, give it a little hardening off, and then basically do what a bird does with a baby bird. I'm sure most of you have seen the cartoon by now. There's this cartoon, and it's like a kangaroo with her little Joey, and she's like, I will keep you here until you're ready. And then there's like a monkey, and it's carrying it on its back, and it's like, I'll carry you until you're ready. And there's one other animal, I don't remember what it is. And then there's a bird. And the little bird is on the edge of the nest, and the mama bird just like is kicking the little bird in the ass and says, Fly, bitch. Right? That's kind of what you're doing. Like, fly, bitch. Grow, bitch. Like, I might still help you, but you're kind of like, you're out in the world now. You gotta, you gotta deal with aphids and worms and all kinds of shit, and you gotta deal with dry, and you gotta deal with wind. And I've done what I can for you, but. This is now, you're, you're out of the, the kiddie pool, you're into the big pool, swim or sink. And so how long will that take? And plants like tomatoes and peppers generally are going to take you about six weeks, four to six weeks. Some, some types of plants like that might take as long as eight weeks, depending on how big you want them to be. 
And I'll tell you one thing I'm more concerned with. I'm more concerned with like a heavy root system than how big that plant is. If you have a tomato plant that's like two and a half inches or three to four inches tall, somewhere in that range, and it's not like a stick, it's like beefy, and it's in a four-inch cup, and that cup is full and roots are coming out the bottom, brother, that plant is ready. It's like, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. So you figure out that timeline. Then you need to calculate your average last frost date. I have this in the notes for you guys, in the audio notes that will be up soon after this is done. But almanac.com, and if you're listening to this and later you don't want to go look the notes up, all you have to do is Google last frost date almanac or DuckDuckGoIt or Brave Search It or whatever, and you'll find the page that I've got right now. You stick your zip code in like I did, 76135. It thinks I live at the Nature Center. That's fine. It's down the road. And it says my first fall frost date is November 12th. That's good to know, but not what I really need right now. My last spring frost is March 22nd. I'm going to tell you that this tool for me tends to be fairly accurate, and I almost never get screwed by it. What most people will do, they'll take that date, they'll add a week to two weeks to it, that will give them some insurance, and then they will plan to plan out if it says March 22nd, maybe March uh, 29th, seven days later. Okay. I get that, but let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from a time when weather reports were not very reliable, and something approaching a 10-day weather report didn't exist. Today, there's an app for that, and they're pretty good. And if you say, ah, you know, you pick a number, like if it says we're going to hit 36 in that 10-day window, I don't trust it, you're probably fine. If you say, well, if it says 34, I'll trust it, you're probably going to get burnt. You generally are going to get at least a few degrees colder. I'm looking for 36 being my low in the 10-day forecast and only being one to two days of it. If I get that, I will risk it. Now, here's what I do. Now, again, I've been doing this a long time. I'm really kind of tuned into my environment and all. But I will plant just anything that I'm going to try to jump the gun with, I'll plant too. For every one I need. And again, I'll give them away. I'll just stick them. I can always find somewhere to stick the damn things. To see if you'll live here. Right? Um, but that way, if the frost comes in and hits me, I just go to my backups. And that's a great strategy to employ there. But determine that and then count backwards. And like I said, if you start looking and your date's like March 15th and you need six weeks, that's now. That's right now. I'm actually a little bit late this year. I'm not too worried about it because, well, we'll get to that uh, in a minute. Because when you do everything right, you don't need six weeks. You can get really plants that you kind of really like. I want to get this the hell out in four, even tomatoes and peppers, if your temperatures are right and your soil profile is right and you do everything else right. All right, so plant at least if, if you are not used to doing this. Whatever number you come up with, try to go back a week. Give yourself an extra week. We'll talk about what to do with your plants if you're not comfortable putting them out and they've kind of overgrown where you're at right now, okay? At least some of them in just a bit. And then once you're there, you're golden, especially if you double up on your plants. And again, once you have all the stuff you need, unless you're at capacity for space, there's not a big cost. And what you could do is maybe 
only do this with the plants that really, really need you to do this. And another strategy that I use is for things like, again, squash, cucumber, melon, any of these plants that are relatively fast-growing, they do well from direct seed, but I still want a little bit of a head start. And if you live in the South like me, especially the Deep South, one of the strategies you're employing is I want to get, you know, people like, well, God, Jack, you, you won't freeze until... Uh, Thanksgiving or something, you've got like an 11 months, you know, that's a little exaggeration, but they'll say, it. you know, 11 months, let's say it's 10 months, let's say it's it's 9 months, right, uh, growing period of frost-free days. Yeah, see, here's the problem. For those of us that live in the real heat of the South, we also know that about July, that plant might not die, but it's going to be like, I hope you got some stuff, I'll see you again with some more fruit or bean or whatever in September. We're just the plant's going to kind of go into a stasis. Not all of them, but a lot of them, especially peppers and tomatoes. They'll stop flowering. They'll even keep growing, but they're just not going to produce well for you in that period. So we're trying to get a harvest, a darth, carry over, and a second harvest in early fall. So we really want to be as almost as early as uh, is it, to, from our frost date as many of you do, if that makes sense. And that's that's what happens a lot. Right, Dark Horse saying it's it's February. Yeah, it's not too early. My granddad, Pennsylvania, much colder than here. Valentine's Day, peppers and tomatoes in the pots by Valentine's Day. If he had to, you know, choke somebody to get it done. And and again, when I was growing up, those grandparents, this was not a hobby. It was not extra food. It wasn't in case something went wrong. Something had gone wrong. The entire place was depressed. They never knew the depression came. They never knew it left. It was a poor area. It was part of their annual groceries. So it was very important to him, and that's probably why I'm kind of strict on it myself. Now, potting soil. I'm going to tell you what to buy if you can't do what I'm about to tell you eventually. I want you to hear this first instead of just knowing you have this solution and, and going off how to do this. I make my potting soil. I've heard people using pine bark and sharp sand and mixing partial compost and topsoil and everything. I use compost. There are some other things, but my base, my soil, for my potting soil, is compost. Now, I make bioreactor compost. For those of you who have seen the results of plants started in bioreactor compost and good potting soil, you know why I do that. Because I'm training that biology into my plant from the time it's a seed. If you don't have bioreactor compost yet, because you, you know you either you're taking my course right now, and you're not going to have it until next year at the earliest, or you just haven't ever made any, or you just don't have it, then you can use any compost. But this is important, and if you're just figuring this out now, you may not have time to do this. Even the best made compost. And the best-made compost never comes in a bag or the back of a truck from a place that turns it with a six-cubic-yard bucket. Okay, I'm not saying I never use that stuff. Sometimes I've got no choice. But I really don't want to. I would buy purpose-made good potting soil first. And again, I'm going to tell you who I recommend for that if you have to do it in just a minute. Okay. Um, but a good compost, even if it's high-turned, something your neighbor made, something you know who made it, something you trust the company you're buying it from, it should, unless they've told you it's already been aged, you should age it. When compost finishes, there's almost no fungi in it whatsoever. 
it's very weighted to a few species of bacteria. The way I do it, it just gets rid of all that. The way you compensate for it is you let compost age. You keep it moist, you keep it covered, but you let it age, and you let it develop the biology over time. Once you have your compost, it needs to be screened for this. When I apply compost like a top dressing in my garden, I don't care there's bits of, you know, little bits of straw that were on the outside, wood chips, whatever. When I'm filling containers, I want it to fill nice. So I put it through a screen. Again, I have a video that shows you exactly how I do this. Put it through a screen, and then I put it into, you know, I usually make buckets so I know the volume I have, five-gallon buckets, like four or five-gallon buckets, and I can calculate my other additives. When I make it in, I have a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub, and I usually make around 70 gallons for a season of potting soil, which would cost me a lot of money for a less valuable product if I didn't make it myself. To that, I add about 10 to 20% biochar. The biochar I'm using this year, I've been making it with from Blue Sky Biochar, Michael Whitman's little stove. It's really designed to cook with, and then you get biochar as a byproduct. When I found out I could get softwood pellets for $6 a bag from Tractor Supply, and that every hour it made a batch, it was a small batch, but it made a batch, and that over a week I could make most of a five-gallon bucket, while it's wet and nasty and cold out, and I don't feel like preparing stuff to burn in my kiln, I made all my biochar for my potting soil this week in that little stove. And I don't have a link, but I'll try to remember to add it, but it's that Blue Sky Biochar. And I did have a question this week. If you had to buy biochar, where would you get it? I would get it from American Biochar or Blue Sky Biochar. I've had both of those folks on the air. They're both fantastic, right? So, now, yeah, yeah, it says Groundhog didn't see a shadow. That's right. It's supposed to be early spring, so you really want to get on it because maybe we can cheat a little bit. And, again, if we double up and we cheat and we get burned by a frost, eh, we just put new plants out, right? All right, so moving on. Um, I use about 10 to 20% biochar, and that's really easy. If you want 20%, you have four buckets of compost, put one bucket of biochar, yeah? And I use about 10%-ish, like this is not real important, around 10% perlite to the total volume, including the biochar. So I think when I made mine for every bucket that I dumped in, I kind of just used as much, like it was four buckets, so one-fourth of the bucket of biochar in, and then I did like three solo cups full of perlite, because I have these giant bags of perlite, super cheap. I don't think you need the perlite. Perlite is used mostly by people who sell fertilizer or, or sell potting soil because it's cheap and it adds bulk and it does help with water retention and tilth. Biochar at 10 to 20 percent will do that for you, but you know what it won't do? Show you anything. And what I mean by that is you want to mix your soil really evenly. When you put that perlite in there, when you mix it, you have something white contrasting with black instead of black contrasting with black. And so you can tell, okay, if the perlite's evenly distributed, everything I've thrown in here is evenly distributed. Now, a lot of times I do add some other things. I just add some other things. But I didn't this year because my shop's a wreck, and I needed to get this stuff done this weekend so I will add the other amendments that I'll talk about when I'm actually potting things up. And whether it's like an individual pot, I might just add it straight to the pot. If it's I'm going to make X amount, I may pull a, you know two gallons into a bucket, add it to that bucket based on the volume, and mix it up with my hands. By the way, best mixing tool for this type of thing is your hands because you can get all the way down. You'll see it in my video and kind of pull it up 
and pull it through and mix it with your hands. If you don't want dirty fingernails, put some gloves on. But your hands will work best. Andy, I'm going to get to it. Yes, you're correct. Rock dust and crab meal, things like that are things that I add. Uh, the crab meal that I add actually is another soil amendment that I'll have in the notes. I'll see if I can remember to add it. But Michael Whitman sells it at Blue Sky Biochar. And it has a lot of really great, it's got rock dust and other things. But azomite is fine for this. Azomite's fine for this. And that's what I have linked in the show notes right now. Uh, but we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that. And that's it. That's it. That's, that's my potting soil. Biochar, compost, perlite. And you don't need the perlite. But again, if you're going to mix 50, 60, 70 gallons, did you mix it? Are you sure? Are you sure you're sure? And the other thing will happen is the compost that I teach you guys to make, the bioreactor compost, it will clump in a ball like clay, but will crumble like dirt. And that's a good thing. In potting soil, you don't want it to clump at all. So the biochar and the perlite keep it from clumping down in your pot, and it keeps your tilt. This is not an issue when you use it in the garden because you're not going to fill up a four-foot-deep garden bed 100% compost. It would work out if you did. It will structure itself in time, but you're just not going to do that. It's too valuable to do that with. You know, um, you know, Each of my bioreactors will make you about a third of a cubic yard of compost. So if you were going to fill like entire raised beds with it, that would be insane. And you just shouldn't do it. It's too valuable to make that much for just that one purpose. That's it. And if you do that, everything's going to work better. Everything's going to work better. As far as what do I add beyond that, when planting seedlings, I amend further. My favorite fertilizer to use is Dr. Earth Fertilizer. And I have that link in the show notes, but... I do not have it pulled up on the screen, so we'll just not pull it up on the screen today. But Dr. Earth 444, it also has beneficial microbes in it. And if you've, I would, this is what I would tell you about Dr. Earth. The NPK stuff, it never, it's never going to go bad. So if you have a box, a bag of Dr. Earth from last season, I would mostly, not 100%, but I would mostly consider it a, a nutrient amendment. And I would just assume that most of the microbes in there have passed away by now after a full season of sitting in a bag and not being in the soil, and their corpses may help feed other microorganisms. If you get it this year, those microorganisms are very active, especially when you buy it fresh. Remember, if you are an MSB member, you can order directly from DrEarth.com and get a 10% discount. So that's good to know. Otherwise, I have a link just so you can see it over to Amazon. So I like to use that and I would tell you that that particular amendment, I, don't, I am not worried about using that at all this year with, with my awesome compost. If you were using a bagged fertilizer or a potting soil product, no matter how good it is, I would add that at a rate of about per five-gallon bucket, like at least two big handfuls, at least that much, maybe three. You're not going to overdo it and mix it in. Another thing with your, with your potting soil, though, this uh, the biochar, and I say this in my video, you should mix that up at least two weeks before you want to use it. That's why, because I want to get my stuff in, in the pots about two weeks from yesterday. And so you want that biochar to have time to marry with the microorganisms in the compost and to get charged up. So 
you want to mix that and, and, and put it in a container and cover it, but it needs to breathe. This is also in the video. And let one thing is the moisture distribute to the perlite and the biochar so you get a much more uniform, you get this beautiful tilth to it. But um, you want to give it at least two to three weeks. And two is, two is good to, to get that done, especially when you're high bioreactive uh, compost. Anyway, moving on, um, rock dust adjuncts. I usually add that straight into my big mix. I know I have it. I'm not buying something I already have. I didn't do it this year because, bluntly, I was in a hurry yesterday to get certain things done, and I, I couldn't find it without cleaning up the shop, and I didn't feel like it. Uh, but I would definitely add some rock dust, no matter how good your stuff is, because we're adding minerals now. So there's a lot we can do with biology, but biology is not a star. It's not a fusion reactor. And if you don't have minerals, you don't have minerals. If you're, like, I'm not talking about, like, it's not bioavailable, but if you don't have manganese, nothing you do will create manganese. Now, somebody's poop might have manganese in it, but in this closed system, if you don't have a mineral, you don't have a mineral, and that plant can be deficient in it. The reason we usually get away with it with seed starting is, this is something most people don't know, when a mother plant makes a seed, in some ways it's a lot like a mother duck making an egg. So that baby is born. Think about this. When a, when a baby chicken or duck is born, if it doesn't eat for the first 48 hours, what happens? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Because it has at least 48 hours of nutrition available to it that's still in what's left of the yolk sac inside the bird. So it can live off its nutrients that its mother put into the egg for a couple days. Plants can do that for a few weeks or more. So you can have a, a plant, and as long as it wasn't it, the mother plant wasn't selenium deficient, there's a tiny trace amount of selenium in that seed stored up for that plant. So it's not as important for seed starting. But to me, if we can get that plant off to this huge start of understanding the associations intrinsically, however plants actually do their intrinsic intelligence, because we don't know, then we're in better shape. So rock dust is cheap, azomite. Um, I can't think of the other, like crushed granite, any of it. Green sand works beautifully too, anything like that. I recommend adding that. And you don't need a lot. I mean, per five-gallon bucket, maybe you need a half a cup. That's plenty, as long as you get a good mix. And again, this is why I like the perlite. You can see that you've gotten a good mix, right? Um, next, I really, 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 I don't care how good your compost is, Recommend, especially for your high-value transplants, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, etc., recommend a fungal inoculation. And the fungal inoculation that I am most comfortable recommending right now is made by a company called Dynomyco. And I'll bring the, the product up on the screen for you right now. It comes in, they look like the little balls that are inside a time-release capsule that you take as like a vitamin or a medication. And that's basically what they've done. They've taken the, the fungal spores and they encapsulated them in these little balls. And when that ball gets wet, it dissolves. And it releases that mycorrhizal fungi into the soil. And that way it stays in a dormant state until it can, it can be resurrected 
and will very soon after that be in contact with a living root because no living root, mycorrhizal fungi, if they come out of stasis in that situation, die. They die. That's 100% what happens. They die. So I do not recommend that you take this expensive amendment and dump it into your big vat of soil and mix it in unless you're making exactly as much as you need and you're going to use all of it today and plant today. Okay? What I do is every time I drop tomato seeds or pepper seeds, eggplant seeds, again, that's obviously my three big ones for this early, I put a quarter of a teaspoon of this stuff right in the hole with the seeds. The second that little rootlet comes out, before you even see the plant come up, there's a rootlet out there. That formation of that relationship begins. What the instructions will tell you is one to two teaspoons. Let's talk about some things that we need to understand about some of the best stuff available in this world right now. Love it or hate it, cannabis is a thing. And it's become more of a thing over time. And it went from something that your buddy down the road, bro, grew two plants in his, his, his closet in hydro to sell to you in the 80s, and it was okay as a, as a product, to very intensely managed, high-value product being grown under some legal umbrella right now, some legal protection. Even if the federal government hasn't snapped to it yet, the growers are like, California says I can, Oklahoma says I can, whatever. And, and the federal government's done nothing in, in, in over a decade. So that like it's only a matter of regulations catching up with it because of that. You have a dude growing a plant. The plant is going to produce $1,000 worth of product in a season. Do you think he gives a flying F about using a teaspoon of something and having, let's say, 50 cents per plant into it to using a quarter teaspoon and having 12 cents? He doesn't care. It's so small to the total cost of the production of that plant, it's a rounding error, so they throw a big, huge amount in. But what is this? It's a fungus. It's a mycorrhizal fungi. It grows in the soil. So what does it do? It grows and reproduces. So even, I would say you could probably use a half of a quarter. What is that, a twelfth? 12.5 you know, of a teaspoon, whatever that is. You could probably use that. But I use a quarter because one little bag of that is enough to do everything for a full season. And I grow a lot. Totally worth it. And what happens when you do that? The difference, I've done it trialed side by side. You can't even compare the two plants. And it's not so much what they do in the rack. It's when they go into the soil. Because one now knows it's, it's been trained from birth to form that relationship. So as its roots get huger and huger, sure, a lot of the stuff you added goes with it, but there's other mycorrhizal species in your soil. And it's just, it's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. That plant knows what to do. It knows how to form that relationship. The mycorrhizal know how to form that relationship. It's on. And it is just awesome. It's just awesome. All right, moving on from there. The other thing I really recommend, and this is back to the same reason I recommend the rock dust, kelp meal. Dry kelp meal. And again, that's something like a half a cup to a bucket. I usually do a pinch to a plant. The kelp meal is more rapidly available minerals. There's a huge mineral profile in kelp. So usually I'm doing my quarter teaspoon 
of my mycorrhizal and a pinch of kelp. I just put a little cup to the side, like I'm like I'm putting salt, and I just put like a, a good side, like it would be too salty, like boom, like a big pinch, three finger pinch, boom, boom, and mix that in the soil. In goes the mycorrhizal, in goes the seed, over the cover goes water in. And so now I've got long-term mineral support as the bio- biology begins to work on the mineral exchange. And I've got almost instantaneous mineral support to the plant that is going to go through the brand new mycorrhizal fungi that just came out of stasis. It's like a, a, a tired bear in spring going, it's time to wake up, okay, let's do this thing. And if you think about what I just gave you, if you listen to most people talk for an hour, which is what I've done now, about starting seeds, 90% of what I just told you they do not cover. They talk about model numbers of lights, spacing, inches. That is all stuff you'll figure out. Somebody asked me here, when, when you're doing this, how much space do you need? It depends on how big your containers are. As many containers fit under the lights in the space that you have, that's how much you can grow. That's a mathematical function. I, I can't answer that question for you. Um, I plant a lot of plants using three four-foot by two-foot uh, shelves. That's a, a tremendous number of plants, and that's going with big solo cups. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm going to just look at it and go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in those bus cups. So ten, I could do 60 plants with six packs in those bus tubs. So I could do 120 plants in that one shelf that I have set up to go. If, and I might do six packs this year, just because you can always go from six pack to larger cup if you have more time to grow out. And there's there's no problem doing that. It's real easy to do. You won't have any transplant shock or anything like that. Just to give a good water in. These things I'm telling you are the the little things that change the difference. When I was on Billy Bond's uh, show recently talking about the bioreactor compost. And we were talking about the fact that like it was a long time coming for me to do a course on it. Because I'm like, I just told you everything to do. And I never realized how many little things there are. Back when I was in telecom, when I first started, I did fiber. I was a fiber optic technician. And I would do fiber optic termination. And you take this little tiny piece of glass and you stick it in the ceramic connector with either a UV or a two-part epoxy. You let it cure. You cut the thing with a, uh, a diamond uh, cutter. And you pull the, the strand off, and it's all jagged. It needs to be polished. And you have, you know, there's different systems for it, but there's some form of a polish that uses, effectively it's a sandpaper you measure in microns versus grit size. Very, very fine sandpaper. would do nothing to wood. And you take this little puck, and it goes in there, and you make these figure eights, right, like this. And I can do this, and I haven't had to do this for 25 years at least now. And I can do this exactly right because my muscle memory came there. And when you train somebody to do it, they're sitting there for 20 minutes on one connector, so it looks like shit. You pick it up, look at it, go straight to the finest grain, boom, 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 boom. 20 seconds, look at it, eh, one more little, eh, there it is. And you show them under a microscope. Like, how'd you do that? There's all these little things that you develop when you master something over time. And it's little things that are generally not seen. What I'm giving you here is as much as I can put into a podcast format of those little things. Those little extra things. Because what lights do you use? Good LED lights. What's your spacing? Whatever fits. When do you set it out? When it's not going to freeze and the plant's big enough. And we can sit here and fluff that shit, or we can talk about the things that nobody talks about. So that's what I'm trying to give you today. If you're buying soil... 
then I highly recommend Fox Farms Potting Soil. I think it's probably the best thing you can buy, get out of a bag, and start using and get the best possible results. Again, Fox Farm, there's Happy Frog, and there's Something Forest. I don't have links in the show notes. I see that now. I'll add that later. But I really recommend that brand. Here's the other thing I'm going to recommend, though. If you have a local garden store where you can go pick it up in the bag, great. You want it to be fresh. That doesn't mean that they had it come off the semi yesterday. You want it to have never dried out, and if it dries out in a bag, this is the good news. It can't ever become wet again inside the bag. It, there's no way. It's sealed up, plastic bag, it can dry, it can and will dry out and properly stored. When you go to your, your box store or whoever carries it, pick it up. If it's not significantly heavy for its size, do not buy it. It's dried out or almost completely dried out, and it's crap. If there's a big pile there, and some of them are heavy and some of them are light, get the heavy ones. What did I say? The little things. I don't care if it's still a little bit moist. The biology that's in there, and there's good biology in Fox Farm, has suffered. It has suffered. It, and if it's fully dry, if it's light, it's garbage. It's inert. You should look at it as hydro, hy, hydroponic media. Nothing wrong with hydroponic media, but that's what it is. It's like buying Lika. You're going to have to put life back into it. You don't want that shit. I'd rather use well-kept organic miracle grow than dried out, you know, Jesus-made-it potting soil. Seriously, if it dries out, you killed it. This is why I'm a little careful in recommending to buy something like this from Amazon. Now, I've done it. I've never got a bad bag. I've never gone a dried out bag, but I don't think it has a return uh, option like most things do, because it's dirt. And again, you're going to pay for shipping even when it says free shipping. They build it in the price. You do not think one of the most data-driven companies in the world is taking a bath on shipping. They know exactly what they're doing. So please make sure you're getting good quality if you're buying a potting soil. And then I really, really recommend, if you're doing that and you're buying that, that you add a product called Cavern Culture. This is also made by Happy Frog. This product has a little bit of some beneficial fungi in it, but it is stacked to the gills with beneficial bacteria, and that is primarily because it is made up of guano, bat guano. It is a very high uh, potassium, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, phosphorus fertilizer. The main reason people use it is for the phosphorus. It's good for that. But the bacteria that are in this product, even though I just said dry, it's going to kill, the, 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 it's going to kill everything, bat guano has this incredible profile of beneficial bacterium, and when it dries out, they just go into stasis. And when it gets wet, they wake back up. And since it's a dust product that's going to get mixed in, it's not going to go hydrophobic on you. You don't want to wet the whole bag down. And this is a product I use a lot since I started making bioreactor compost. I don't really use it much anymore. Sometimes if I need a good phosphorus kick of a plant in the garden, I'll throw a little bit of it on the plant. But overall, I don't really... But if you're buying your potting soil, this is the number one amendment along with the mycorrhizal inoculation that will improve your results. In fact, I would say if you get Fox Farm soil, use a uh, the Dynomyco and this, you're going to be okay. 
you're, you're going to be okay. You might not be optimum. You might not be perfect, but you're going to be okay. And um, another thing that I do, this is another kind of um, tip, trick, call it what you want to, something that you probably won't hear from other people, is once that plant gets to the point where it has at least two sets of true leaves, and a lot of times it's three or four sets, like because I want to do this about halfway through. Like if it's a six-week grow out, I want to do this in my third week, as long as we've gotten at least enough leaf on the plant to do this. I'm going to take a spray bottle, and I'm going to add the just right off the bottle of, of GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp, Exactly the amount it says for however big my... I can't tell you how much... I don't know how big your spray bottle is. You might have a one-gallon little pump sprayer. That's what I use. Right? Or a two-and-a-half-gallon... I have a two... Yeah, it's a a two-and-a-half-gallon pump sprayer. So it's easy to hold and spray your plants with. Liquid kelp. And when I make it, I use a compost extract from my compost again. I make a compost extract. I literally take whatever size container, how much I need to make. So I use a five-gallon bucket for everything because it's easier. So I'm going to only need maybe a gallon of this liquid... Because I want to use it fast. I'm going to put it in there inside a paint strainer bag. I'm going to mix it up with my hands 5 to 10 minutes. Or throw an airstone in for 5 to 10 minutes. It's not tea. I'm going to squeeze it out of that bag. And get as much goodness out as I can. I'm going to take that spent compost. I'm either going to put it back into a new pile. Or an older pile. Or anywhere. Or I'm going to add it to my garden somewhere around some plants that need it. And I'm going to mix that with my liquid kelp. And I'm going to do a foliar spray of that. It is not overkill, and you can leave that in that bottle even if some of the biology dies. You know, Use what you have. If there's some left over, the minerals are still going to be fine. I'm going to spray those plants probably once a week until set out. Just a light spray, and if you can get underneath the bottom of the leaves, even better. And that's really going to kick everything up hard. I got a question I will come to at the end. If you have a question for me, do it the way Rodney did right here. It's the only one I have in the bank right now, so if you asked and I missed it, do it again. One eye by myself today, so uh, I might miss questions. I will star them, and I will come back to them at the end. The answer to that question, short one, is it doesn't matter that much. It's all good. It's all good, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. Um, but definitely the liquid kelp. Liquid kelp is probably uh, one of the most underused, most valuable inoculums or uh, foliar feeds that you can get your hands on. It's super cheap. When you think about how little you use per spray and the advantages and the, the, the sheer volume of minerals that go straight into the plant to get it through any hard times. Like if my plants are unhappy, my go-to right now, uh, I make a ball out of my compost, I dig a hole, I stick it in at the root level and cover it over. That usually is enough. But then I'll usually make some extract and go ahead and spray everything anyway, because why not? It's easy to do. You cannot spray too much compost extract on your plants. You can do it at the wrong time. You want to do it in the evening is best, so that it has overnight, and it's still sitting there in the morning, and it will you know, mostly dry off and what have you before it gets hit with the sun. Uh, but, yeah, uh, that will turn just about anything around. And the, the, the compost extract, the compost, and the uh, liquid kelp will fix almost everything except it's a very specific and heavy mineral deficiency and we'll get to what to do about that here in a second um next troubleshooting slow and low germination most of the time if you have slow germination it's too cool 
And you might think, but it's 70 degrees in here. What's the, ter- what's the temperature of the soil that the seed is in with the water evaporation rate that it has? What happens when you put water on your forearm and you just sit in a room, no breeze, whatever, just a regular room, and you wait for it to dry and you compare your two forearms? Which one feels cooler? The one with the water evaporating. So a lot of times you might think, well, it's 70 degrees in here, but your soil temperature might be 50, 55 degrees. If you are in a shop and the majority of the night and the daytime, the air temperature is in the 40s, that soil temperature might be 35, 38 degrees. And even though it gets up to 75 degrees with no sun hitting it and only the ambient heat from your lights, that soil may never cross 48 degrees. It's not going to germinate worth a shit. Raise your soil temperature somehow. Whether that's increasing the heat in the room, putting a heat mat, whatever it is, raise, check your soil temperature, raise your temperature. Get yourself one of the E-Tech City guns that I recommend. These are one of the most valuable tools. They're about $25. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and put in E-Tech City, all one word, E-T-E-K-C-I-T-Y, you will find everything I've mentioned from that company in my write-ups. I'll try to remember to add it to the show notes, but that's going to be a lot of things I missed today, um, so I might forget. But get one of those. There's a hundred things it'll do for you. It runs on one little battery. And, I mean, I have my kids, my grandkids, doing science experiments with it. Explain to me why the back porch is 20 degrees colder than the front porch at night. Use this gun to test whether or not Grandpa's lying to you. Things like that. So... Then shoot the surface temperature of that soil when it doesn't have the lights on. And whatever that says, it's probably a few degrees less, you know, a quarter inch under that soil where that seed is sitting. And so you want to bring that temperature up. If you do not bring the temperature up, you probably won't solve the problem. The other problem is often that the seed has just is a low germinating seed. And I can tell you how to fix this for most batches of seed. You think, I got bad seed. It's not like I need to replace this or whatever. Take a Ziploc bag. Take about four sheets of paper towel, maybe three sheets, as much as you think you need. And fold it until it's twice the size you want it to be when you're going to put it in the bag. Soak it. Wring it out till it will still drip a little bit. But it's, it's wet, but it's not like sopping. Put, you know, as much seed as you need to start and then maybe 20% more in that paper towel. Fold the paper towel over one time, so it's got the same amount on both sides of it. Stick it in a Ziploc bag, zip it shut, and put it somewhere warm, and set a reminder so you do not forget about it so it does not over-germinate in that situation. Remember I said little things when you're polishing the, the connector, right? This is one of those. You want to check that literally the next day. And every day... And as soon as you see a seed with the tiniest rootlet sticking out of it, get it into whatever container you're going to grow it out in. I saved an entire batch of jalapeno seed. Not, not jalapeno. They're my own seeds. They never do that. Uh, Cuban L. I, bought, I don't even want to say who because I've never gotten any other seed that had a problem with it from this company before. But I bought a, a fairly large packet of Cuban L pepper seeds, and I got no generation or germination at all and do domes hold moisture they do and eat those even in soil with a dome and heat did not germinate but when i stuck them in the paper towel in the the bag they germinated like crazy and i didn't have to buy extra seed that year 
And I didn't lose a whole package of seed. And I was making a bunch of them for friends and stuff, so like it was a it was not like a little tiny packet. It was like a like a two ounce packet or something. It was pretty expensive relative to what seeds cost. And I was able to say with that. You will also find some some seeds just don't want to germinate in some places for who knows why. I have always struggled with celery. Celery, I do not use that method because they're so tiny. They're so hard to pick up without it. But going to a dome, that fixed my celery problem. And I owe James White for that, that, that advice there. I'm like, I get shit for germination. He's like, just take one of those you know, standard you know, 11 by whatever they are plant trays that comes with a dome and, and, and put them in there and put a heat pad and they'll get like 100%. He was right. I had no problem once I tried that. But places where the paper towel and the the bag work really well, cilantro. I got to put down 100 cilantro seeds in a guard to get one to come up. Why? I don't know. They actually have multiple seeds in each berry. So if you split the berry in half... And put them on, they will germinate like really, really quick for you. You still might get a lower germination rate than you'd want, but you get enough to put enough plants in. Um, spinach. Don't know why. Spinach does not like to germinate in the ground for me. Probably because it's so cool at the time of year that I want to plant it, but even in my cups, it doesn't like germinating. Spinach seed, paper towel, two days, it's out. Four days, you screwed up and you're throwing it away because the roots are breaking off and shit. Now, where is the best place that most people have, not everybody, but most places, most people will have in their house to throw that packet of seeds. As long as you probably won't see them, you'll forget about them. Trust me, you need like a daily reminder on your phone every day until they're gone to check them. Your cable TV box. On the top of your cable TV box, there's a little grate. And that little grate is where the heat exhaust is. I throw my bags of seed that I'm germinating this way right on top of the cable box. But again, on my phone, I set a, a daily reminder, check your seat. All it says is check your seats. And as long as anything's on that bag, I keep it on. If you forget one day past when you should have removed those seats, you'll wish you didn't. So, if you're going to do this trick, have as many as you want to make of those varieties, everything ready to go where they're ready to drop in and plant. The only thing you don't add until the day you put the seed in, the mycorrhizal fungi. Do not put that in in advance. You're wasting your time. That is another, and before I thought of the cable box, and most people that don't have cable, you probably have a refrigerator top of the fridge. That is another great place. Refrigerators are cool, but that means they move heat out, and the top of the fridge is another good place. Very, very good place. Um, Count Country 89 says Roku box. Anything that produces ambient heat. Bitcoin miners, you know. That might be a little too much heat, so think about where you locate it. But any that has like an ambient heat, especially heat overnight, because what you have is you have these heat swings, night to day, night to day, night to day. So if it has like a steady heat, that's what you just don't get it too hot. But all the things we've talked about, that's not going to happen, right? Um, how about leggy? I see so many people sometimes so proud. I'm starting seeds. Look how big they are already, and they got this plant, and it's like two and a half inches tall. Has no true leaves on it. It's got this thin little stem, and you're like, man, I don't want to tell them. Hopefully, somebody else will tell them. And you know what's going to happen? In another day or two, it's going to fall over, right? That's what you call leggy seed links. That's a good point, and I didn't say that. 
Somos22, Somos02SS, whatever the hell your name is. Um, that's a weird handle. I, he says, drop your likes down low. Absolutely. That's why I recommend these guys that I ran last week, which are these uh, little pulley lower deals. And that way you can actually just move your lights up and down. These things are about a buck and a half a piece. They're totally worth it. The company that I recommend you get them from is called Zazzy. I don't care what you do. Make some way to lower your lights and raise your lights. And keep your lights only a couple inches from the tops of wherever your plants are. That way they don't have to reach for the light. And that's where I was going with that. So you have your light is either you don't have an intense enough light or most likely your lights are too high. I see people do seed starting systems. They have like, you know, a foot of growth from the top of the container to where the light is which at some point that plant might need that if you grow it out that much. But for seedlings, even really good lights, that sucks. Your seedling doesn't want that. It wants Your plant lights are not as intense as sunlight. You don't want them to be. You want the spectrum, but you don't want them roasting the crap out of the plant. And so that's, that's something you have to... And 229 mix is the only downside with domes being how close that light can get. You should have a shallow dome. That dome does not need to be there while you're growing the plant out. It needs to be there until the plant emerges, and maybe you leave it until it has two, two true leaves. If you, you're going to get other problems we're going to talk about. If you leave that dome on, you get too much moisture, you're going to start getting dampening off and mold and mildew and other things. So it's not really that big a deal, except you certainly don't want the light so close to the dome that it melts the dome, but the plant doesn't need much light when it's just emerging. Once it emerges, get the dome off, bring the lights down two inches from the top of the plant. And keep an eye on it because plants can grow two inches in a day if you're not careful. So you don't want them up in the lights. But leggy, leggy is almost always a light problem. This is a little hack you can do. When Remember, your potting soil is your biggest expense in starting plants, really. I mean, when you figure out how much a seed costs versus how much soil is in like a four-inch cup or even like a six-pack. So conserving some of it, not a bad thing. Leave some space to the top of the container. If you start to get leggy seedlings, correct the light issue that caused them, but backfill around the stem to give them support. And a lot of times you can even go inside, like even a six-pack, and kind of push down, not on the plant, on the soil, around the plant, compact the soil a little bit, and that will give you a little bit more that you can add. If you've really screwed it up, you may have no choice other than very gently try to remove it and go to a larger container and get it deeper in the soil profile. But if you get the lights down there, you won't have that problem in the first place. And the thing with leggy is if you see it start, you want to take corrective action immediately. It looks like they're getting leggy, get the lights lower. It looks like they're getting leggy and you have the lights about as low as you're comfortable with, change the timer on your lights. So I usually go 12 on, 12 off. If the plant seems like it needs more light, give it 14. It'll be all right. Give it 14. I would never start plants with a photo period longer than 14.10. I know people do 16.8. If you're growing it out, like you're doing hydro indoors to eat, do what you want. But that plant's never going to experience that early on in most latitudes. So don't do that to the plant where the plant gets accustomed to that. And then it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right, um, And there is a difference between total light and intense light. So, for 
for instance, I have my garden located so that by you know late in the afternoon, it's in full shade, but it's still getting light. That's still part of the photo period, just, just to, to clear that up. Poor color. We could go through a laundry list, an entire table of the different things that happen to plants where they have bad color, they start to turn yellowish-green, they get chlorosis, etc. But here's the reality. Nine times out of ten, when you have a plant that you know NPK is not an issue because you've used some fertilizer, you're using compost, it's a little plant, it doesn't need a lot until it gets out in the garden, Okay. So nine times out of ten or more, honestly, the deficiency you're looking at is either calcium, magnesium, or iron, zinc. That's pretty much it. That's, I mean, there are other things that can happen, but in a started seed that otherwise is okay, but its color's off, that's most of the time what it is. And so keep a little spray bottle, label it, get a good foliar, uh, calcium, uh, magnesium and a zinc iron. Why zinc iron, calcium, zinc? First of all, you almost will never find it any other way. And the reason you'll almost never find it any other way is each each of those pair requires the other. If you have a calcium deficiency, you will have a magnesium deficiency. The plant needs both to uptake either. Same with iron and zinc. It needs iron and zinc present. You don't know which one's missing. Throw a teaspoon of that stuff into a small spray bottle Label it, keep it, keep it closed up and, and near your stuff. And if you see that like light green color or whatever, you just spray them. And that, that can last 10 years. It's minerals, it's not biology, it's not going to go downhill. You probably don't need it. But if you see that problem, that will usually fix it. Unless you used a organic fertilizer that wasn't. Like, it could be a nitrogen deficiency or something as well. But it, it probably isn't if you've done over everything else that we've talked about. So that would be the troubleshooting. Mold, slime, etc. You're overwatering. That's it. Every time you see, like, green film forming on the surface, you're overwatering. This will also often happen when the soil is too cold. You get poor germination and this mold or slime or, or green shit, some sort of algae growing. So that... that Life form is sitting there in a wet, relatively not too cold environment, and it can exist there. And your your seed is either not able to grow, not able to germinate, or it's not thriving. And then it's now it's competing with this other organism. Water less and warm your soil temperature. Just don't let it dry out. It's that simple. Again, drying out is bad because there's no there's no reserve. There's no battery. You're planting a garden. It can put deep roots down. It has a battery of, of moisture. Your plant in a cup has a very, very uh, limited battery life of moisture. Your plant in a, a hydroponic system has zero battery. If the water goes down and it can't reach the water, it dies almost instantly. So it's the battery size shrinks as we go to different methods. Uh, just, just understand that. And watering from the bottom is great, except you can't just leave it sit in water. You have to have some sort of a flood and drain or you're filling it up and you're giving it enough time that it wicks in and you need to make sure that whatever container you're using is actually capable and the, and the media you're using is actually capable of wicking it up. I've seen people do this. I water from the bottom. My plants never got, you know, wet and they all died. Yeah, you know what happened? Yeah, you, remember I said you picked the bag of potting soil up and it was light 
and you bought that pot, you have hydrophobic potting soil. You have to soak that shit. I mean massively soak it to get it to ever take water again. And then it has no freaking life in it. So water from the bottom is fine. If you're making your own cups like out of solo cups, I recommend you put holes in the sides and not just the bottom then. Now the bot now I say the sides down by the bottom, maybe a half inch up. If you're using solo cups to make seed cups, this is what I also recommend. Do not take, and I just happen to have one sitting here. Do not take your drill, right? For you guys on the audio, there we go, right? So you get the full experience. Do not take your drill and drill holes in your solo cups. Because when you do, you're going to make tons of little flakes of microplastic. We have enough microplastic in our lives. A soldering iron, just a cheap soldering iron, get it nice and hot, and it just melts straight through there, and it kind of cauterizes the plastic so you get less plastic into your soil. That's just another thing that I would recommend. Uh, Andy says, uh, nope, it's Smoss says, uh, three to four tall triangle cuts on the side. That'll work too. But like I said, if you use a, the soldering iron, you just, it just melts through. And you can stack about four cups and go like three in the bottom and four on the side in one go. And you know your, your last cup in the stack will be a little higher. But as long as it, you start low, it won't matter. And then what I do is I have my flood and drain trays in my outside system, and the, the timer on the water pump down to the reservoir just goes off and fills that tray up to that level like three times a day. And it just fills for 15 minutes and drains instantly, and it'll never dry out. And then if you started to get too wet, just go to two times a day or, what, or whatever, right? I, everything for me on my duration is 15 minutes because I use the really simple century timers, and they're in 15-minute in intervals. All right. Um, That's kind of it for today. Um, oh, one more thing. What if I did everything Jack said? And including I used like good compost, I bought it, I made it, whatever, and I did everything that I and I'm gonna I'm gonna star that for you, Smoss, and we'll talk about that in a second. I did everything I was supposed to. And now my freaking tomato plants at four weeks are like as big as I thought they'd be at six weeks, and they're not fitting in the rack system I made anymore and they're really too big and I need to get them in the garden but we have a freeze coming in a week and I don't want to put them outside for that freeze okay this is why it's nice to have multiple setups eventually like one out in the shop that's for bigger plants and all you move them out in the shop you close the shop up you don't need them to grow really fast they're already big as you need them to be you might get a 28 degree day they're safe inside your shop you're good or your garage okay that would be one option Another option, get some sort of trays that makes your life easier and do the outside method. Put them outside in the morning, assuming it didn't freeze that day. When you come home from work or you get done work for the day, bring them back in the house. Just make sure you put them somewhere easy to do that. Make sure, and this, you could start the hardening off process that way. And we're not really going to talk about transplanting today. That's a different subject. But that's a, that really, either one of those is an easy answer. This is also why if you have systems that are like set up for bigger plants outside, you do, like most people would say you're better off direct seeding cucumbers and squash and stuff like that. I like to cheat that a little bit too. I like to get that in the ground as early as I possibly can and well started. But what I'll do with that is I'll start those outside. It's already warmer out, okay? So like now we've our average daily temperature is much higher when we're only two weeks, three weeks out from planting. My larger systems out there, lower the lights down, stick the seeds in, start raising the lights right away. 
cucumber, squash, melon, all that stuff goes really fast. Really fast. Like two weeks a lot of times you're looking at like a huge plant, especially in the type of mix that we're talking about. And so I just start them later in the year in a larger system. Or I've moved my indoor stuff outdoors and I could start those indoors. Either either works just fine. So, yeah, Mark is saying three weeks early for cucumber. That's about right. If you start making the compost I teach, you might change that to two weeks. You're going to be surprised at what a two-week-old cucumber looks like in my potting soil. It, it will kind of blow you away, especially if you get your temperatures right. Yeah. All right, so my final thoughts on this, back where I started... Look, I, again, I don't beat up people for making a profit. I want any company that, that I make, um, that I'm doing business with, I want that company profitable. I want that company profitable. I don't want to do business with a company and depend on them and then, like, they go out of business because they didn't make enough profit. I've literally told, like, I've had a, I had a handyman that you used to have. I don't have anymore. He's, he moved. He was great, and he underpriced his work. And most people would be like, yo, that's great. I'm like, no, that's not great. If this guy doesn't stay in business, he won't be there for the next project I need him to do. And I talked to him. It's like, are you marking up your materials at all? He was not marking up his materials at all. And I'm like, you're going to go to Home Depot or Lowe's so I don't have to. You're going to get all the materials for the job. You're going to bring them here. You're going to install them, and you're going to take care of putting away the extra material for me so that there's no mess out there, right? He's like, yeah, I always clean up. I'm like, no, you do. And you're going to do all that for free. That's part of your service. I'm like, throw 20 points on your materials, man. Really, 15 at least. And you might think, well, then you're just throwing money away. No, no, no. I'm investing in the person that I'm relying on. When I started this show, people were like, Giving me, most of them are out of business to make my point. All Like, you pay for hosting for your audio files? You're crazy. You could do that for free. And I'm like, no, this is a long-term thing. And here I am, 16 years into it, right? And I'm still here. Now imagine if I would used one of these services, and I had all my files hosted there, and then they go out of business. Well, now what? Or they decided, you know, this guy's kind of crazy. We don't like him anymore. I turn me off. Buy my own box. Buy from a company that lets people buy a box to put porn on. Why? Not because I'm pro-porn, because if you let people have porn, you let them have TSP. And so I am not opposed to a supplier making a profit. $6 for a freaking 3-inch tomato plant is highway effing robbery. Those people do not deserve your business. They don't. This is usurious. Uh, when COVID hit, everybody went crazy with gardening, including a lot of people that didn't know how. Yeah. And the demand went through the roof. They jacked up the prices. And then the game became, if we don't lower the price, now that it's all over, will we sell any less than we were selling pre-COVID for more money? That's the math calculation. I get why they did it. The answer was mostly no. We'll sell it all anyway. So they haven't brought the prices back down to anything approaching reality. There is no shortage of their shitty potting soil. There is no shortage of their shitty plastic cups. There is no shortage of seeds. There is no shortage of trucks to bring them to Lowe's and Home Depot. 
It might cost a little more. It does not cost enough to charge somebody six dollars for a, for a tomato plant. And as much as that pisses me off, do not start your corn plants inside. That's dumb. But they're out there selling a little cup with three strands of corn growing out of it for six dollars. Somebody should have their ass kicked. I don't know where I ever came up with this concept, but I think that there is a punishment for certain people. It's kind of bizarre. It's not disfiguring or anything. Well, I guess it could be. But it's real, it would be really humiliating. It would make a freaking point. I believe there are, th this is the punishment. You get a big, like a king salmon. Like something, you know, like baseball bat length. It goes in the freezer till it's like half frozen. And then you get smacked, you like hold the tail like a bat. And you get smacked in the face with it to learn a lesson. People that are charging you that much money for one plant, they need that. They deserve that. When you can go out and buy a decent-sized blueberry plant that's a perennial for ten bucks, and it's six bucks for three stinking strands of corn that are going to die and not going to produce because corn doesn't work that way, or it's a freaking bean, it's freaking a green bean, in a, and they're selling it to the gullible at this point. No. It is time. You either do the stuff we talked out about today... Or get your ass online and start looking for independent nurseries and find independent nurseries or like feed stores using independent suppliers and, and pay two, three bucks a plant. That's reasonable. That's re it's still a little high. You could still save money. But it's I understand a person has to sell a lot of plants making a dollar a plant to make a living, to make it worth doing. I get it. I get it. Six bucks from a mega corporation who's churning them out in a mass-produced model using icky gick and all kinds of shit that you don't want anyway? No, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. And, and think about over the years, how many times have you ever heard me really rail on pricing on anything? It, it's not something I commonly do. I'm not that guy. You have to understand, if I'm saying this, you know, there, there is a reason. Real quick, our item of the day today is Barina Lights, which fits today's show perfectly. Yes, that was by design. I would have ran these today anyway even if I did the other show. Um, Barina makes, I'll put it this way, the lights they make, if you had bought one, one light, 10 years ago, that good, that's what you're paying for six of them today. They cost about one-sixth of what they did 10 years ago. I don't think Verena was around. I'm saying that quality as far as the intensity, the amount of light, the longevity, everything else. Like anything else, when you make enough of it, it gets less expensive. And again, we have the cannabis market to thank for this. When the cannabis market got legalized to a large degree and these expensive plants and they started making the best of the best for them, well, as they moved on to the next generation, you had all this stuff that had geared up to serve that market in the beginning And, well, just we're going to throw away all the tooling and everything? Or is all these gardeners... Like, we have we have economy of scale now. And that's where a lot of these things come from. Again, these lights today... And if you've paid attention in the past when I've shown you Barina lights, they're usually like the pink ones. I hate that. It was just what was available when I first started recommending them. They, these lights are a pinkish white. They're basically a white light. I've trialed them. They work just as good. They're the ones that I have in my rack system over here right now that I just put together for this season. Um, and they just look better, in my opinion. And they're also on sale today. Uh, they are, and again, I have these reversed, but the uh, two-foot 
ones are $55.99, and the four-foot ones are $79.99 for six. That is dirt cheap. Again, I wouldn't go with anything else. And if you want to get this done, the time to start it is now, next week, or one more week for just about everybody in the country. So pick your lights up while they're on sale. And again, this stuff, guys, it pays itself back so quickly. So quickly. Um, And then if you want to know how to make my compost... Remember, I do have a compost course. I think we're heading pretty quick toward 200 students. Uh, and, and it's not even been open for a month yet. And everybody that's given us any feedback has been really happy. But I want to show you, and this is, this is not a start from a seed. This is a stuck cutting. But just to give you an idea of the, the quality that we get when we make this compost. And I said Fox Farms is a good potting soil. Those are two plants on your screen if you're watching the video. The one on the right was planted in Fox Farms potting soil, and the one on the left was planted in my compost. I I don't have to say anything else to tell you about the quality of our compost. You can find our compost course at homefoodsystems.com. I do have a permaculture principles uh, course coming out. I I videoed the last chapter on Friday. I'm going to trash it, and I'm going to redo it. I am not sat. It's a free course, and I'm not satisfied with it. Um, so definitely, I really recommend that when that course comes out, if you haven't taken the compost course or whatever, uh, go ahead and take it. You'll get a feel for how our instruction works. And it's, it's like a four-hour total course all in with exams and certification for free. So that's coming very, very soon. With that, let's take a couple questions here. Uh, some are questions. Some are just thank yous. Weathered Soul gave me a $5 super chat. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. And NRK uh, gave us $7.77, triple seven super chat. Thank you for that. And, guys, I really appreciate that because what I've done since YouTube lies and YouTube is putting commercials into the live stream if I allow ads different than they say they will do, and they are messing up your experience, I just don't turn it on anymore. I wait till the next day and I turn standard ads on and I allow three ads to be inserted for you know a two-hour show or a one-and-a-half-hour show. So I don't have... There will be no more ads in my live stream. I know it's kind of hard on some of you guys bitching about it. I'm sorry. I didn't know those lying bastards were being lying bastards again. And they said yeah, I could set my frequency and one-time only, and skippable only, and they lied. So I've thrown that out. That cost me some money every month. A couple super chats like that in episode, I'm way ahead anyway. So thank you so much. Rodney says, what do you think is better, basalt dust, granite dust? Does it even matter? It doesn't matter that much. It doesn't matter that much. There is a significant mineral reserve in all rock dust. If you really wanted to cover your bases, pick two. So do like basalt and green sand, something like that. But if you're if you're doing any of them and you're using kelp, you you know Bob. I think Bob's your uncle is what they say in the UK or Australia or something like that. Like Bob's your uncle. It's it's not that critical. I just recommend you pick one of them at least and use it. I tend to use basalt and green sand, uh, especially when we plan out. Oh, and I forgot something. Somebody mentioned it, and I'm like, damn, that should have been in my notes. When I start tomatoes, every tomato I start in the cup that they go in, 
I put three aspirin tablets, assuming I'm doing like a solo cup size cup. If I'm doing six packs, I put one in there. And then, about three weeks in, I dig a little hole in the side near the plant, and I add one more, to, uh, one more aspirin tablet. And when I plant that plant out, I'm not going to go into everything I do when I plant out today. We'll do a show on transplanting soon. Uh, we'll build it in somehow to another show or something. But I always throw like three aspirin tablets in the hole. And now I grow tomatoes from the day I put them in until frost without blight. Now I get blight, but the blight doesn't kill them. And I'm getting less blight every season as my soil health improves. But it was the aspirins. And again, thank you to James White on that one because he's the one that turned me on to it. Uh, I've, I've had people talk about using them for other nightshades like peppers and all. I have seen no difference, so I don't do it. And, I mean, you buy the cheapest big-ass bottle of aspirins you can, and it lasts you for seasons. I also, on the first of every month, through the growing season, every tomato plant, and I don't grow that many tomato plants, I pull back some soil and drop a few plant, uh, tablets in there, push the dirt on and water them in. What most people do is crush, like, a, you know, four or five of them into, like, a two-gallon watering can and water it into those plants. I figure if I put it in the soil, it's a slow release, and th that's what's worked best for me. Uh, Somos says, do you use sunshades or any parts of your garden? If so, what plants percentage and how much sun does the area in a day? I don't. I don't. I would probably go with, if I was going to do it here, locating it so it's almost 100% of the day under shade. And I, if I was in full sun and I couldn't do what I do, which I'll explain to you in a second, I would go 30% all day long. Because that's 70% sun. Okay? So I want about 70% of the sunlight in a given day on my plants. And that is both diffused and full on. So I don't want full on 70% of the day. But I want about 70% of the light. And when I, I've tried different things with like screenhouses and stuff like that. And when I went to 60, my growth was crap. And when I did 50, my growth was crap, and I went right from 50 down to 30. And that's my climate was just really intense. So that's what I would do. What I've done is I've cultivated trees, and I located my garden, my primary garden, on the east side of my back shop. And so I have kind of a mix. I have some that have more sun, and I, I use things like eggplant there. Eggplant likes a lot of sun and some of my peppers and stuff out in that area, and then the things that like a little bit more shade are closer to the building and the layout of the garden. But I have things that like lots of sun in both places, and they do. They, they all do fine. I've just noticed eggplant and peppers really do good in the, the place that gets the longest duration of sun, so I tend to put them there. And so I'm using structure. And if you're in the south and you're getting too much sun, the formula will never change. You'll hear me say it probably 100 times a year. You want morning sun and late afternoon shade. And you want as much shade in the afternoon as you can get. So like 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, somewhere in that range, you want to go into shade and stay in the shade until the sun goes down. And that's because we have the heat build up. The coolest time of the day is like one hour before light. So when I grew up in Pennsylvania, once the sun crested and started going down, you started seeing the temperature drop. I moved here, like that shit don't happen. Like, if it's really hot at 6 o'clock, it's going to be really, really hot at 7.30. It's hotter at 7.30. It's insane, but it is what it is, and that's what we adjust to. Uh, Eka Mouse. How you doing, Eka Mouse? Thanks for always being here. 
Uh, have you considered using water distiller using 700 watts an hour over a four-hour cycle to heat a greenhouse area uh, two times on a timer and trigger after four hours for the second will allow eight hours of humidity? I have not. Um, I don't own a water distiller, but that sounds like a fun idea. It's not something I need to do. The, you know, I mean, humidity in my spring, you live in the high desert, I think. I am hot in spring, and I am wet in spring. So I haven't ever played with it because I haven't ever had a need to. Somo says, oh, I see. I don't know why I thought that was. That's a comment to somebody else, but I'll read it anyway. I had bad algae issues last year with plugs. Never went away, but the plants did fine. Often that will happen. Um, not always will you see that you have a problem because you have uh, algae especially in a hot, like plugs usually it's hydro so that'll happen sometimes but what will knock that back without hurting your plants pure you don't need them to dilute it unless you're buying like agricultural or scientific the um, hydrogen peroxide you get from the store full strength one little mist on the top will knock that shit back like if it's one and it doesn't go all the way back wait a day one if you overuse that on your plants, you can cause your plants problem. Don't really put it on the leaves or whatever. That, we can use hydrogen peroxide on our plants. It can be useful for certain things. It needs to be diluted when we do that. For what we're talking about here, you kind of like put your hand in the way so the plant doesn't get really hit with it all directly and just one spray right on the surface. It will knock the shit out of that algae. Uh, Mark says, what do you think about Clyde's Garden Planner? I have no idea. I don't know what that is. I've never used it. It sounds like an organizational tool for figuring out what you're going to plant. Um, and he's asking the same question again. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Cultimus Maximus says, what does the aspirin do? We don't really know. Science is not sure. Uh, they think it has something to do with the salicylic acid. That is what makes up the aspirin compound, but they're not really sure. I don't know if it makes the roots stronger, and therefore it's better able to fight the blight. I don't know if it directly impacts the blight. I have never gotten a good answer from anyone, but the answer I get from people who do it is, it works, so I don't care. And I would love to have an answer to why. But right now, my answer is, I don't know why, but I also don't care because it works. So it's, it's probably something to do with that. And that would be an interesting little experiment um, if we were to take something like willow, like, wi like a willow bark extract, and use it, and it still worked. Then that would further refine it. And that would also free us. That would free us uh, from the aspirin supply line. But again, that's a pretty cheap and uh, pretty reliable supply line. Uh, BG says, could crushed eggshells be used for minerals instead of rock dust? That will give you a really good supply of calcium. It will not give you a broad spectrum supply of minerals the way that rock dust will. It will give you some other trace minerals, but it won't give you the full profile. Unless you're feeding a really good mineral amendment to your chickens, and then it might, and I'm not sure. I have no problem with crushed eggshells. My eggshells all go into my composter. That's, and I'll tell you something else I do with my eggshells. 
So when I'm making eggs, I don't have time to fart around with everything else, right? Like, so I crack my eggs and I put them in a bowl if I'm going to scramble them, maybe straighten the pot if I'm over easy or whatever, and I throw them in the sink, and then I eat my eggs, whatever I was cooking. Then I take my eggshells out of the sink, and I crumble them. I don't, I don't grind them. I crumble them, and I put them into my little compost collector, and then they go into my open pit. And then my open pit gets added to my main compost when I make my bioreactors. I have never seen an eggshell. I know the ducks eat a lot of them, but I know a lot of them end up like buried under all the other crap and they don't get to them. And because when we're shoveling it, sometimes we'll see an eggshell here and there. But when they're already like, it's funny, you leave a half an eggshell in a compost. You dig that compost up. Everything's broken down. That eggshell's still there. You just do this. Just one crunch with it. And it completely gets incorporated into the compost. Okay. I want to be done. So I'm going to do one more, and this is it for the day. And we can figure out what we're doing tomorrow, and maybe we'll pick up there. Uh, actually, I think tomorrow I have my first Tuesday with John Willis and Nicole Sauce. So that will probably be tomorrow. Uh, is there a way to reset plugs from bad projects, including mold and algae, before use, like bringing up to a certain chimp before re-inoculating? Now, I think you're talking, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're talking about like for hydro. If you're talking about like the little peat plugs that are made to be put out in the garden, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. If you're talking about a cup with potting soil in it, we'll get to that. If you mean like the, 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 the plugs that are kind of made out of like peat and some other things, and they're for growing hydroponically, and I also do say you can absolutely do your starts with those, though I've moved more towards soil-based starts. If it's those, ra okay, rapid rooter, that's what you're talking about, hydrogen peroxide. In fact, I never throw them away until they start to fall apart. When I do a hydro grow out, they got roots in them and everything. I cut the plant off, and I throw them on top of my oven flow bed. If you have a worm bin, put them in the top of your worm bin. The worms, within a couple days, will clean all the roots out. They'll also clean everything else out. And then I use a 50% uh, hydrogen peroxide to 50% um, water. And I put them in, let them soak in that for a few minutes, take them out, squeeze them out, throw them in a Ziploc bag, and then keep them sealed in a Ziploc bag so they don't dry back out, and use them. just use them again. I probably get four to six uses out of one plug. When it starts to fall apart, I throw it in the compost, and it breaks down, disappears. Or just leave it in the worm bin, and they'll, they'll eventually just break it down into nothing. So, anyway, with that, we are going to wrap up just shy of two hours today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, there are some things I didn't get into exactly what the spacings are. You'll figure that out. The stuff I gave you today. It's the hard one shit over about 16 years of doing this on a regular basis, making all the mistakes and finding all the little tricks. Um, someday there may be one of the home food systems um, courses on just this. But I am not for the secreting of knowledge for the purpose of profit. I give everything I know and everything I have. Now, if I put it together in a course, it's a lot more organized and concise, and it's going to be, you know, Probably a five-hour course if I do it. But you don't need it. Don't wait for that. Go start some seeds. I've already. If you take what I told you today to heart, and you follow that process, you're going to go into your first year of seed starting if you've never done it before, like you're in your fourth. 
Trust me. Go make it happen. Stop letting people steal your money because that's what Bonnie et al. are doing. They're literally at this point, it's not just a little high. They're stealing money from people who don't have another option. Don't let them do it to you. Take care. Hey, Drag Life, thanks for showing up here at the end. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.